Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, people, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. When it comes to investing, we all hear about how important it is to start young and consistently put money away for later in our lives. But for young people especially, that's not always an easy thing to do. My guest today, Acorn's CEO and board member, Noah Kerner, is making investing easier through the app's primary feature that rounds up every purchase you make to the nearest dollar and adds a difference to your investing portfolio. Acorn's mission is to look after the financial interests of the up and coming, beginning with the empowering step of micro-investing, as well as providing resources for learning about investing on acorns.com. Noah, welcome to Brand on Purpose. I appreciate you having me here. Thank you very much. I appreciate having you on the show. And we'll get into it a little bit later, but you are also a serial entrepreneur. You have a really fascinating, kind of multi-talented, varied background, which I can't wait to get into as well. But let's start with Acorns. If you can probably do a better job than my intro, describe what Acorns is, why it exists, why you were excited to join the team there almost at the moment of its founding. So Acorns is now the largest subscription service in money. And the fundamental purpose of the product is to help everyday consumers save and invest over the long term. We've helped people save and invest over $15 billion. And I caveat that by saying this is not, you know, this is not your typical $15 billion in a, in a fund. It's small amounts of money. You mentioned spare change, but you can also do a couple dollars a day or you can do $10, $20 a week, whatever you want. But it's, it's a really large amount of money when you think about the small increments that are contributed from our almost 5 million subscribers. At the core of it is our desire. I had been challenged by a person some time ago to write down what I wanted my purpose to be or professional purpose. And I, I wrote down this idea of leveling the playing field. And that's really the work of what we're trying to do is provide access to these tools of wealth making, helping everyday people save and invest that hadn't before, giving people access to tools that they hadn't had before. And when we talk about everyday people, can you expand on that a little bit? Are we talking really about everyday people? Like Yes, yeah, middle class. Okay. Okay. Because, you know, obviously there's a lot of discussion around inclusivity and being able also to reach those who, you know, live in the margin, who might not have access to tools like this. Can you talk a little bit about that as well as it relates to Acorn? Yeah, it's the middle class of America. Today, it's just focused on the United States. We're everywhere. We're like in every nook and cranny of the country. We're actually, I think right now, growing faster in the South, but we're in every town, every city, every state, and pretty close on gender. It skews a little bit male. But household income pretty much maps to Census Bureau data for America. So, and you know, we try to price the product so that anybody can use it. I do start with the subscription service. We brought subscription pricing to the category for a few reasons. One, it's really simple in a category that's really not simple. Two, it's it's meant to be transparent. So you sort of, you know, you can see what you pay and you get what you pay for. And and that transparency we felt like is really good for this category. But three, and perhaps most importantly, when you think about how to build a business that does good in this category, I think you have to get to the root of the business model. I always say that the root of integrity in a business is the business model and subscription decouples the business model from what is typically the behaviors that get people into trouble, which is overspending, over borrowing, trading these things. So we don't monetize as our primary business model, those activities that are the activities that get people, particularly everyday people into trouble historically. And that's really important to think about, like, how do you scale a business that is in the business of trying to do the right thing? Yeah. As you're speaking, I'm thinking about Noom. And I know it's totally different, but I think about Noom and the weight loss category, right? 
And I feel like there might be a component of that too, because if you're, I don't have a subscription to Acorns, but my guess is that you're also providing a lot of information in addition to transparency and the strong alignment of interests. Active learning is part and parcel of the purpose of the product. We talk about educating at the moment of decision-making. So we try to weave education into all the things you do. We also have an area of the product where all the education is housed. That is really central to the mission of Acorns. And I think a point of difference from financial services, typically where education is used as like content marketing or whatever it's used for. This is a core pillar of our product. Right. And what do you attribute the growth to? And who are you really competing against? We compete against inertia. So trying to get people who are dealing with lots of things today to think about the way, way future is hard. The thing that works best for Acorns is we've tried to make it really easy to engage in all these things that have historically been hard to engage in. And we do that in myriad ways, whether it's reducing the friction to sign up, making choices on behalf of people that they would, would have had trouble making, perhaps like constructing a portfolio for somebody like, you know, it's really, it's just complex, like, you know, to educating people as they go to simplifying pricing. Everything is about, we say, make big decisions, small, don't make people do math. None of us are particularly, well, most of us are not particularly good at math. I'm not necessarily particularly good at math either. So I like things simple. I come from a family. It's funny. My mother used to do the investing in the family, but she would go to the ATM machine and just break down and get terrified. Like she, and it was just overwhelming to her. And I think money is overwhelming for the vast majority of people. It's also one of the greatest emotional taxes. That idea, I, I focused a lot on the emotional side of money rather than just the functional side. This is not a, just, just about serving up products or accounts. You're dealing with shame, embarrassment, insecurity. You're dealing with a, a subject that is the driver of things like depression and domestic violence and these kinds of, so you're dealing with a very heavy emotional subject. And yet it's a very clinical industry. Well, clinical and really the industry writ large is built on complexity and opaqueness, right? And you're basically breaking those two things down. I think that's so interesting. You also have, I alluded to it earlier, this very kind of varied background, right? I actually want to start with J-Lo. People are like, what is he talking about, right? But you were a DJ for J-Lo back in the early 90s to the early 2000s. And I'm sorry to take this quick kind of detour, but I'm just fascinated by it. One, what was that like? And two, what did you learn from that experience that made you who you are today? So I got turntables in 90 or 91. I was a kid who grew up in the East Village. I loved hip hop. Particularly, I loved the beats. I loved the, the power of the 808. Like any premiere beat was like my favorite part of a day, you know? And it wasn't a commercial thing at the time. It was very, I mean, it wasn't not commercial, but it wasn't like DJing wasn't some crazy phenomenon. It was still very hip hop. It was still very much about guys like Premier and Scratch and Pete Rock and some of the battle DJs. I used to love watching battle. And I just got obsessed with it. It became my favorite thing to do. And I went, you know, for two years or so, I, every time I came home, I couldn't wait to come home get into my little bedroom in my, I grew up in an 800 square foot apartment, put on my headphones and just try to learn a new scratch or whatever. And for two years, like till whatever time in the morning, four o'clock in the morning, I would do this every night obsessively. I had parents who really promoted creativity and curiosity. 
which I was very fortunate for. But like my dad would sit there having no idea what the hell this is. And I would be like, you know, trying to learn some new, it was like, you first go from, you know, this like this thing to the, that thing, which you just, it seems impossible. And then you figure it out. And then there's a funny thing about DJing, like you can tell DJing is like time stamped by the scratches that were popular at the particular time. So I got out of it a little bit when the crab scratch became the popular scratch. So I still have trouble doing it. But but yeah, you know, it was an amazing thing. It was all, to me, it was creativity. And I loved scratching and figuring out the nuances of it. It was It's very percussive when you treat it that way with from a turntablism perspective. And so I started doing hip hop nightclubs when I was really young. And then anytime I, obviously anytime I could, if I could open for hip hop groups or things like this, I would. I think Wu-Tang Clan was the first group I ever opened for. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. I did a residency when I was really young in LA on Sunset where I was playing East Coast hip hop and it was during that time where, and Pac was like in the back throwing up West Side gang symbols at me. This is like Biggie versus Tupac Yeah, yeah, time, like 96 or, yeah. or something. And the promoter comes up on stage and whispers to me, hey, you might want to stop with the East Coast and points to the back. And I see him in the back like doing this, you know, and I'm like, holy shit. And I start, I suddenly played every Snoop Dre Far side, you know, Souls of Mischief, whatever I could get. Every West Coast, I did a, but it was it was really an incredible experience. Upon reflection, and I became, when you say DJ for Jennifer Lopez, I did her parties, but I was also in the band for a period. So I would effectively, when we would do shows, I would scratch over eight bars or sixteen bars or you know or whatever during the set, and and that was really that was really fun. But I, you know, you don't realize this while you're while you're going through it, but every night and performing in front of hundreds or thousands or even 25,000 people getting that connectivity to that constant connectivity to people. It's almost like tapping into the vein of what moves people because you're there for hours managing a crowd of people. It's true resonance and engagement, which can be applied to so many yeah. things. Like life, I didn't right? learn how to do marketing or build products or connect with consumers by going to school or by getting a, a master's degree or by working in a marketing department. I learned how to do it by playing in front of crowds night after night after night and learning what moves people, how to capture them, how to lose them, all the fundamentals of marketing, you know, that people study, but the real, that real experience. I love people who've done a lot in music because, you know, and who have performed that way or done theater or things like this, because there's that crowd connectivity and that experience that you can't quite get in other ways. Right. And at the same time, even for you, I'm sure it was a little meditative, right? So while your mom's like doing the family's investing, your dad's like, what's he doing? But I'll support it. You're trying to lay down these tracks. You're trying to learn, but you're also, it was probably very, it's a way to also regulate your mental state, isn't it? In some ways. I don't know. I mean, I was kind of a lunatic as a kid. Like the thought of being outside of of the city was insane to me. Like I didn't want to be anywhere else. And I loved the energy of it. I loved the kind of like, you know, people have sleeping sounds like mine was ambulances and whatever on the street. That was, you know, when you're constantly confronted by the intensity of New York City, that becomes your normal. So I didn't really grow up with it. Now there's all this stuff about wellness and meditation and all this stuff. Like I didn't really grow up with that as a thing. It was more like there's just this high intensity New York energy constantly going on. And so that becomes your wavelength. As I've gotten older, 
now I more appreciate things like the woods. But like when I was a kid, it, you put me in the, in the woods for a weekend and I'm like, get me out of here. I want to get back into the brick city and be surrounded by that. Yeah. Well, and I think you mentioned wavelengths. I think everybody has their own wavelength, right? And while it might not have necessarily been directly correlated to, oh, this is what makes me happy, but that's what made you happy, right? And people are just calling it different things today. But I, I do see what you're saying about kind of reading a crowd, reading a room, reading a market, right? Because you were basically pitching to a marketplace every night and knowing what works, what doesn't work and staying with it. And that probably led you to also become very active in the music industry, right? You're a board member with Save the Music as well. Yeah. Well, also the first industry I had exposure to was the nightclub entertainment industry, very, very young. And if you want to talk about a tough world, where it's like everything from there is like financial services a walk in the park from that perspective, like the characters you deal with, et cetera. It's like, it's not, you know, nothing. But yeah, music has always been, since I was very, very young, an important force in my life. My mother was a classically trained pianist and I just always loved music. And I, I really value the significance of music to people, particularly kids. So Save the Music, the organization is all about delivering music and instruments to schools across the country that might not have access to it. There's this thing called the Music Tech Grant, which was something I was obviously a big advocate for getting kids into turntablism or production or this, which I view as a gateway into instrumentation for kids who might not necessarily have had a piano or, you know, or whatever. Like, so it's been a through line. My first company was a hip hop web company. My agency started in, in music. I had a music agency, you know, it's, so it's always been this thing that I feel very connected to. And funny enough, I never thought I would leave music. I think when I was young, I mean, there were a bunch of moments in my life. Like I wanted to be, a, I love animals. So I wanted to be a vet at one point. I thought I was going to be a tennis player when I was really young. But I think once I knew music was, I thought I would end up being in the music world. I think I imagined I would start a label, you know, or something like this. So, but the transformation for me happened when I thought, there are, this is not in any way to denigrate the significance of music, but I thought there are some higher order problems. And so the wealth gap, health, education generally, I mean, music obviously plays a part in education and the environment. I kind of looked at the couple areas that I thought were the most significant and thought, why don't I combine what I do with what's most important and spend my time there? Yeah. Well, and I was reading somewhere, I don't know if it was your own words or an interview that you had where, you know, so yeah, you grew up in East Village, you went to public school, New York City public schools, and that was obviously a very diverse environment. And then you'd, after school, you'd go like play with these like really super wealthy kids playing tennis, right? But you saw the two worlds, like this, this dichotomy. How has that influenced even decisions that you make at Acorn? Oh, well, I grew up understanding the richness of diversity because it was my existence and what I saw. And I saw the value of it as a kid because to me, New York City is the greatest city in the world. I still believe that. And at the time, it was the most incredible, eclectic mix of people. And the outcomes of that, whether it was the arts or creativity, cultural institutions, food, relationships that people built, the intellectualism, the debates, all of the things that make New York City, New York City, that was what I saw. So for me, diversity was built into my DNA. And it's a, when I see it, in corporate America as this sort of catchphrase or this thing that people just discovered is important. 
sometimes I wonder, like, do you really know how important it is? Because the importance of it is actually, it's truly a fact that when you have a diverse group of people together, that mix can be the most incredible, can deliver, drive the most incredible outcomes. Studio 54, by the way, which was, you know, the most kind of incredible nightclub. The key to Studio 54 was the mix. Yeah, I watched the documentary. It's amazing. Right. The documentary right. is amazing. Schrager yeah. is in my book that I wrote when I was like young and too young to write a book. But people think it was like this place that famous people, the people who worked the doors curated this incredible group of people that came in. And you might have some huge celebrity next to a street kid. And that was the magic. That was the magic of New York City. So I, I've never encountered anything like that environment, that melting pot. And I just, I don't think there's anything quite like it. And the outcome of it is just magic. Yeah. So I just became an empty nester. and My wife and I raised our kids out in a suburb right outside New York. Great school district, but very homogenous, unfortunately. And when both my kids went off to school, my youngest just went off a little while ago. One of the things I've said to them always is try to meet people and hang out with people that are not like you, have different backgrounds, different points of view, different worldviews, things that you might not necessarily agree with. That's okay. How do you convey that message to the corporate world? How do you actually make that stick in the way? Because for you, it was very organic and you took that through your entire career and the multiple companies that you either started or joined or worked with as a board member or as a leader, right? But how do you make something that is so powerful organically? How do you translate that to the corporate world so it is performative and, and it is real, not just like just lip service and something because your board says you have to do? Well, I like the saying, I never learned anything a day in my life from someone that agreed with me. I'm not sure that the way that diversity today is framed has everything to do with true diversity of background thought nurturing debate conversation openness it feels sometimes or a lot of times to me like it's about a certain kind of diversity that's prized and my view is within certain obvious confines diversity is about being surrounded by people of all kinds of different backgrounds genders races ethnicity you know everything where it's all about the community of people being open listening debating challenging that is what leads to like there wasn't this New York City was not about harmony, actually. New York City was about friction and debate and all the goodness that comes from that. But in a healthy, civil way. Not always in a civil way, but, but the collisions that came from that melting pot and stew of a culture. New York City was also dangerous. And- Yeah, I remember it in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Very well. It's not comfortable hearing things that you don't like to hear but it's much more uncomfortable having those things discussed in the shadows. And so I, I like the idea of real openness, people really listening, people speaking their minds. And obviously there's boundaries, right? There's boundaries you, and you can't, you know, if you're saying something that's racist, well, you need to stop talking, you know, but if you're very sensitive to things people say, you also need to listen up. And somebody might say something again, not to a certain extent, but they might say something that makes you uncomfortable. That's the moment where you have a chance to grow. And so, to the extent that I can, I try to nurture that inside. And the other thing is when you think about a company like Acorns is like, who are the people we serve? We serve everybody. We're trying to broaden access to everybody. So if we represent everybody, we have to be everybody. And that's a fundamental, you know, for me, that's part of the 
how do you educate people about the importance of diversity and richness in a company like ours? It's like, how can you be about everybody if you are not everybody? There's dissonance in that. It doesn't work. At least it doesn't work to the fullest extent it could work. I also, you know, when we, when we went remote, one of the subjects of, of diversity that people don't talk about, but is a real, obviously, truth of America is geographic diversity. And there's incredible, every pocket of the country, there's all these differences. And so we were located in Southern California and New York City. So how are you going to have real diversity when you're in two places like that? Now, over the last two years, we went remote. We've, we've hired people in most states in America. So I also like to have that perspective. What's happening in this town or this city or this? Like bring all that, those insights and gems to the table so that we can properly represent people across the country. And how are you dealing? So, you know, as we record this, I've tried not to watch the news today, but I'm pretty sure the Fed's raised interest rates yet again. But the economy is kind of, I'm not sure it's sideways, but it's certainly less certain than ever before. Does that give acorns is that neutral? Is it positive? Is it negative? Is it a greater challenge? I know that you guys postponed your IPO due to market conditions. You're probably looking at the private markets now. Talk a little bit about how you're navigating through this economic environment. Yeah, we fortunately were able to do a private raise before the market really started to get into trouble. Acorns was built for this time. I mean, like sort of like death and taxes. There is a truth about investing, at least so far which is that every downturn in history has ended in an upturn. And I always try to use that line to remind people that when the market is down, you only lose money when you pull your money out after the market went down. Like it's paper loss. So if you stick with it, unless the world collapses and markets collapse, and of course, who knows, that's possible. But every time in history, the market has gone down, it has gone back up. So stick with it, stay in the market, dollar cost average, meaning continue investing, similar amounts through the dips. And by the way, when the market's down 20%, if you take that philosophy as truth, which is what history shows, the market's on sale. It's a great time. If you have an extra little bit of cash or whatever you have to get, go shopping, go shopping. time to go, go shopping. shopping. Yeah. And you had a, I'm just so curious. You had a very brief stint at WeWork. I think it was chief marketing and chief strategy officer. We were making up titles at the time. Yeah. I saw, I saw we crashed. Did you watch the show? I did. I was talking to somebody who was a software engineer at the time, and he was very saddened by watching it, actually. And while he said, yeah, there was obviously some truth to all of it, you had to be there to understand what it was like. And it felt a lot better than the show portrayed. But I'm just kind of curious, like, what did you learn from that experience? And what was that experience like? To the extent that, you know, you can talk about it. So I'll, I'll give you the backstory. My second company my noise, which is a product development marketing agency focused on the young adult space. We got acquired in about 2010, I think toward the end of 2010. And Adam and Miguel had a little floor in the building in Soho, kind of around that time. And so I stayed on for three years after the agency got acquired in the deal. And Adam and Miguel sometimes would come to our office because we did digital product, physical product and marketing. And we were talking about building like a digital accompaniment in effect to the physical space. Like if you're gonna build all this physical space, how do you connect people digitally across different spaces? And so we were talking about it. So toward the end of the period of my deal with the agency, the, the company that had acquired my agency. Engine acquired you, right? Yeah. 
I moved into a chairman role. So I was doing that one day a week. And then Adam convinced me to come join him, Miguel, and the team that was there. It was a small team. They had, I think it was two buildings. This was at some point in 2013. And chief strategy and marketing, we like literally you're making up titles at this point. So it was like, you know, it's more about these are the things I'm running and you're running this and that. So without getting too much into it, I'm a big believer in the idea of community in work because having started a bunch of things and knowing how lonely it is to build the idea that you have people around you who are in that struggle is powerful. People can say whatever they want, but I studied this. So I know the facts. The thing I was most consumed by was understanding what this idea of community meant. And as it turned out at the time, 70% of the companies and startups and small businesses in those companies self-identified as doing business together. Now, to me, that was the power. When I hear people say it's not about community or they don't understand community, I would say, you don't don't know what you're talking about. So you haven't started something. You haven't, maybe you haven't been in that struggle. You also don't have the data and the data showed that that was the case, at least at the time. So I thought that was a very powerful idea. By the way, I also believe deeply in the idea that community can be applied to various categories. And that was part of Adam's vision. We just had, you know, we had differences of perspectives and I was also dealing with some personal stuff at the time. So I was there for a relatively short period of time and I went and took actually for the first time in my life, I had started three comedies, written a book and I was just, you know, funny thing was, so I I needed to take some time off actually, like I needed to. I don't know how many people are confronted. I was what you would consider like a classic workaholic. And so the experience of needing to take time off, like I was having some physical stuff going on and and, and I needed to, and I did, and it was really important, but within a very short period of time, I'm writing new business plans and, you know, thinking of ideas. And that was when I got connected to the co-founder of Acorns. He had just started it and we launched it and we got on the phone together. And I, I was really moved by what he was working on and what he was imagining. And rewinding, I had Chase as a client. Chase was one of our first big clients at my agency. And we were working on products and ideas for them that would make them, in my view, more responsible as a word, or you know, creating simpler product experiences, more responsible. We built the first credit card to reward responsibility rather than spending. That was a, a you know, we, so I was working on this challenge on behalf of a big bank, which comes with its challenges also, obviously. And so like, There was a lot of history for me in this category. That was just one example. There was a lot of history. And so the idea that you could be untethered and create from the ground up what this category and what people need, I knew that that needed to happen outside of the category, whether it's the business models, whether it's the approach to consumers, whether it's the our money first, your money second mentality of financial services. Right. I mean, that was how PayPal was born. Well, yes, I think though the roots of PayPal to me are in technology solution. Right. But everybody who started it outside the industry. Yes, correct. Correct. Right. And that needed to happen in order to transform that industry. Right. You couldn't do it from the inside. Right. Correctly. Right. Yeah. So, so giving people easy access to investing is just instantly like, there's no way the future is going to be better unless this access is provided to more people. So then from there, what I imagined was we have this vision statement called the finance building a financial wellness system there's 
investing products, but then there's the rest of the things you do in your financial life that impact how much you can or cannot save and invest. And so to me, you have to get into these other areas as well to help maximize a person's ability to save and invest as much as possible. Because if I'm over here with credit cards and debit cards and spending, 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 or I'm borrowing, 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 and I'm not managing my debts effectively or my spending effectively, or I'm not earning as much as I can, I can't really save and invest as much as possible. So that became the sort of broader vision. And here we are. By the way, the co-founder and I co-founded another company in 2017 called Say. I was just gonna ask about that. This is back to leveling the playing field. Like we had this perspective that new investors have new rights. Most investors don't exercise their voting rights, but every investor has voting rights. New investors don't know that they have voting rights most of the time. Yeah, well, many people, myself included on occasion, put it in the shredder when we get those things. Yeah. So we wanted to simplify and provide better access and understanding of your voting rights and the power that comes with that, the empowerment that comes with that. So we started building products and for people to better exercise their voting rights. One of the cooler examples was Elon and Tesla used Say to invite every size shareholder into the earnings call. And so now, even if you own two shares in Tesla, you might be able to ask a question on the earnings call and he would answer it. I thought that was a great example of how to bring people into the process and do it in new, you know, new ways. That company ended up getting acquired, but that was an example of what kind of work can you do to try to level the playing field? Do your part. So say got acquired. You're not part of say anymore. It did fully acquired. Yeah. Okay. Can we talk a little bit about, you said earlier that you were too young to write the book. Was it called chasing cool? Yeah. Would you ever write another book having gone through it once, even at a younger age? So my answer to that is a really simple answer. I would write another book if I had an idea for a book that I felt like I had to write. I didn't write that book because I wanted to write a book. And by the way, this is an important point for anybody, I think, creating anything. For me, and, and maybe this is not the right thing for everybody, but it's not about a want, it's a need, it's a compulsion. I had something I wanted to say and I felt like a book was the best medium. So I've had other ideas for books, but nothing that made me put pen to paper and start writing and don't feel like a book is, you know, that that's it. I started writing a book called The Purpose Playground. I wrote like 30% of it. And then I'm like, no one's going to fucking read this. My mother's not going to read it. But actually, I think a better medium is a podcast called Brand on Purpose, right? Because I know people are going to want that. Not many, 30,000, whatever, but no one wants to read that book. So I, I get what you're saying. 30,000 right? people. Those two things people. have to connect. Yeah. And I say I was too young because... It was a business book, but the message was born out of my experiences with agencies dealing with large corporations a lot of the time who I felt were constantly looking in other people's backyards to determine what to do. And one thing I knew from an early age is that you have to pursue your own personal vision if you want to create anything that really resonates to the point where people would call it cool. You don't just put your hand in someone else's backyard to create cool. You know, that's why we called it chasing cool. Cause I felt like, I felt like everybody was chasing after this idea that's so elusive and the act of chasing it, it kind of suggests that you'll never catch it. And I wrote it with the guy that had a Barney's and we, we interviewed 75 people who we thought had created these things that had a lot of resonance in society. What was it that they thought about? How did they approach the problems? How did they, how did they think to inspire people to pursue their own personal passion. The book ends with this, with this great quote from Julian Schnabel, the process is the prize. 
which for me was kind of the message. Like you can't manufacture this thing. You just have to have a really deep vision. You know, you have to pursue it relentlessly with a lot of passion and conviction. And maybe if you're lucky enough, this thing will intersect with culture in a way that it resonates at that level. But that's not something you can fabricate. It's interesting. I had the founder of Lovesack on, and a lot of people don't realize that he started that company way back in the 90s. And he was the winner of Richard Branson's version of the Shark Tank or The Apprentice. And actually, the runner-up was Sarah Blakely, funny enough. But he has this expression called wantrepreneurs, people who have all these ideas, but they don't do anything about them. And not that you have to, but he's like, try it, do it. Like, if this is something you're really, really interested in, go for it. Because you only get one ride in life. And you have to care enough about it that you're going to put yourself through that pain to go after it. It's not romantic. It's not a joyride. It's just like New York City. It wasn't all about joy. There was a lot of issues and challenges. So building something, starting something, putting something into the world that wasn't there before, it's, there's always going to be a lot of pain. There's going to be joy. There's going to be pain. It's going to be hard. So if you don't feel like you have to do it, I think it's really, it's really hard. And you have to also always ask yourself what you're doing it for. Because you don't want to come out on the other side looking back after, on the last however you know long and feeling like, what was that for? Yeah. And last point about it can be lonely. Community is very important. And that community can come in many different forms. But you also have to have a pretty thick skin because anytime you do something new, there's always going to be critics. And you basically have to run through that wall. And that's, that takes a very special type of attitude. I know you have it ad nauseum, I have it as well. Maybe not as much as you, but it is something that you have to have. And I don't think you can train that. I don't think you can teach that. You either have it or you don't. I was watching this Drink Champs episode with Nas last night, who's my favorite. Ah, my favorite. With Nas? Yeah. I love Nas. And he was talking about this exact thing. This exact thing. And by the way, I think about it like, it's a funny thing. Like you have to always listen, but you also have to never listen. And that's, there's a funny balance in there. Like if you read too many comments or you're too immersed in what people think and you're listening to all these voices and you're in the reviews all the time, you're just, it's too painful. So you kind of, it's a funny thing. You have to always listen and always be open and be constantly inspired by things, but you also have to cut yourself off. At least I think to be healthy, you also have to cut yourself off from a lot of the noise. I mean, maybe there are some people who can read all that stuff and who can take it lightly, but I don't know, somewhere it's gotta be in your unconscious or building up accumulating. It's hurtful. If you put something out there into the world that people don't like, and they tell you it sucks or this, I don't think anybody could honestly say that there's not something hurtful there. But to have the tenacity and the resilience, I think resilience is the key ingredient to come back and say, you know what, what's more important is the creativity and the creation. And I'm going to put this aside and, and keep going. But But you can't. There's nobody who doesn't, they say it's business, it's personal. Give me a break. Everything's personal. We're humans. I agree. There should be no difference. And, you know, I remind folks in my own industry all the time, like, you know, you have agency and we also have this gift. And when it comes to oration and persuasion and influence, and you have to meet that moment and it is personal. And, you know, I have to say, Noah, I don't know if my listeners are going to get this. I think they are. But for me, this has been actually very inspiring, but also therapeutic. I can't quite describe it, but I really appreciate your time on the show. 
And very quickly, what's the best way to follow you and or Acorns and sign up, quite frankly? Oh, the easiest way to sign up for Acorns is just Acorns is, is in the iOS store, Android store. There's a web app. You can go to acorns.com and it's all there. I don't do social media, so I guess I'm on LinkedIn, but I don't, yeah, I don't do that. So, oh, wait, Acorns is on Instagram. Acorns on Instagram, Twitter, et cetera. You can Acorns, right. Yeah. Awesome. Noah, thank you so much for being on the show. Congratulations on all your success. You are a machine and you're also a huge inspiration to so many people. And I appreciate what you're doing to remove, actually to remove the opaqueness and the complexity and replace it with you know transparency and simplicity and opportunity for so many people. So thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful, purpose-driven companies, organizations, and people. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our production team, including Maria Bias, Michael Grubbs, Anna Lamb, Haley Sackett, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show, sponsorship opportunities, and host by emailing bop at kwtglobal.com or visiting aaronquitkin.com. Find us on LinkedIn and Instagram under Brand on Purpose Podcast.